That, that loves love. There are so many TV shows and movies that are, are in some way about love, right? There's reality shows where somebody thinks that they're going to find love <clears throat> by being sequestered with a bunch of other people and then competing for an eligible partner. So that works out really well. <clears throat> we have the Hallmark Channel, right? Which is an entire network that is dedicated to basically telling the same love story over and over with different actors in different picturesque towns. Yet in none of those movies have I ever seen anyone with bad teeth or a receding hairline. There are hundreds of romance novels published every year. Not, I mean, not just, you know, secular ones, Christian romance novels, which I... <coughs> Which I assume, <laughs> which I assume are the same storylines as the secular romance novels, except with prayer instead of smut. That's what I figured out. I don't know. Never read Whatever. There's conferences, and there are books, and there are podcasts that are all dedicated to how we can love our partners or our children better. And some of that's good stuff. Some of that's really good stuff. I have benefited from the five love languages. Okay? I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a useful idea, a useful concept. I am disappointed that um, he did not include my love language, in love language which is guitars. Um, that's the sixth love language. Yeah, or, or cool guitars. I mean, yeah, 69 Chevelle would be a love language. I mean, you know. Anyway, BMW is on the other hand. Not a And of course, who could forget the love boat? Which ran for 10 years, is the highest rated TV show ever with love in the title. And is exciting and new. And you should tell the board if you're very expecting <laughs> But I can tell you all of these things do not rise to the level of God's love which is both more than and different than the love we think of in all of those different ways. Now last week, John was warning us some more about false teachers and how they can be identified by both their words and by their fruit. And that we need to be testing the words. And we need to be observing the results of those words, the fruit of, of whom we listen to. But now, John's going to move into a section where he's going to talk again about God's love. Now, this is the third time John has talked about God's love and how we are loved. Remember, uh, he circles, right? He keeps circling back in his topics, and he's circling back again. He talked about love in chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And then he talked about love in chapter 3, verses 10 through 24. And now, here in chapter 4, he is once again going to talk about love. And he's going to talk now about it as a defining characteristic of God. Listen to what it says in 1 John 4, 7-14. Beloved, let us love one another. The love is from God. 
And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Where did I hear that? The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God is manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now before we go through that and look at, at God's love, and in fact this is extremely, probably the most popular verse, right, in 1 John, God is love. Who doesn't like that? Who doesn't love that? There's some false ideas about love that are common in our culture that I think you should be aware of. And I just call these false loves. You know, God's love is definitely, we're going to talk about here in a minute, one of the most misused verses in the Bible. Not because God is not love, which of course he is. But because our understanding of what love is as it relates to the scriptures and to God is so often tainted by our own experiences, by our own desires, by other ideas we've consciously and often unconsciously incorporated into our understanding of love. Now, I'm going to guess most of you who have been in church for any length of time, even this church, have heard plenty of sermons on how love is not merely an emotion, it's an action, and you've all heard that. Right? You've heard about the, the three main Greek words for love, about heard sermons on that, and the differences, and how it's I'm guessing that you probably realize that biblical love is not, not the lust that passes for love on TV. Love isn't to be confused with mere desire or pleasure, right? Like I love chocolate cookies. They were very good. Or like I love Joe Bon Moss's music. I mean, I must, considering how much it costs to lose. I mean, we've gone three times, haven't we, Joe? Yeah. I could have bought another guitar for you. Yeah. <laughs> but I couldn't play it with Joe Bonham. Um, now, the areas I want to point out have more implications for our understanding of this idea of God is love. The first one of them is very common in our culture, and is a, a misunderstanding of love and, and of God's love, is that love demands acceptance. This is the idea that, that love means we must tolerate or accept any form of belief or conduct. If you love me, you have to accept everything. You have to, you have to agree with me. You have to accept everything I do to say. Another way of putting this is the idea that there is love has to be without standards. Now, I think for a follower of Jesus, it, it probably makes sense for us to see this because Jesus clearly loved people but clearly had standards. For example, there's a story in John 8 about a woman caught in adultery, right? And, and yes, some of you maybe are sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute, we're not sure that that story was originally the old manuscript of the scripture. Well, yes, but it's clearly a story that talks about how Jesus would react. So I think it's a story. Right? You know the story, right? A woman's caught in adultery, she's brought by the Pharisees and the scribes, and 
caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law says we should stone her. That thing didn't work. No, he was not stone. Right, and then they all walk away from the oldest youngest. And Jesus looks at the woman and he says, No one condemns you? And she says, No one, Lord. He says, Neither do I. But then, what does he say after that? Go and sin no more. Standards. Did he love her? Did he save her life? That dude was going to throw, throw rocks. But he did not excuse or not call her to his standard. I also wonder in that story, where was the dude? Takes two folks to his altar. Apparently they let the man go and took the woman, huh? Lots of both of these Anyway, God loves us for sure, but he wants us to do better. We can love others but still desire that all of us move more toward God's standards. I can disagree with you. I can even not condone your actions or your lifestyle and still love you and want what is best for you. Love does not mean I have to condone, accept, or agree with everyone or everything that someone does. That's personal. Second thing is the idea that love is conditional or is earned. This is the idea that love is a response to someone doing what we want or what we think is best. We sometimes project this onto God, thinking that if I somehow am a better person, God will love me more. God, God can't love me more because He's already sent His Son. He doesn't have like, he doesn't have like, like some love in reserve, just in case. Right? Not the gas tank, but like, you know, when you get E, right, there's still like a couple gallons left. Oh, yeah, more usually. Sometimes, though, you know, you get E, you know, I know I can't get to that in every second. God's not like that. He's not holding some love in reserve. Okay? He also is not, when we don't do what he wants, holding back his love. Because we do that too, right? When somebody doesn't do what we want, we withhold love. Because as much as we hate to think about it, our love is somewhat conditional or somewhat earned. It's very difficult not to be like this, okay? I, I mean, when I say this, it's not, right? The three fingers are pointing at me and only one's pointing at you. It's hard not to be like this. Because let's face it, is it not more naturally easy to love people who act or think like we think they should? Of course it is. It's our natural way of being. But God is love, we're going to see shortly, that is in spite of, not because of. We're going to, we see this really often, I think, when we're working with hard to deal with people. Right? They don't, they don't say thank you. They don't respond in the ways that we have scripted in our minds that they should respond. Many, many years ago, when he was little, I bought a coloring book for my nephew. Okay? Not knowing that he just wasn't into Thomas the Tank Engine. 
Well, he was not particularly thankful because he wasn't in Tom's tank engine anymore. And the truth of the matter is, I did not respond well to that. I was wrong. Okay? Because if you give a gift expecting a particular scripted outcome in your mind, you have not given a gift for making a trade. That is not a gift. Especially when he wasn't asking for anything in the first place. God's love is like that. Third one. Probably the most important. I call this unholy love. This is the idea that God's love is unbounded by his primary attribute, which is his holiness. This is the one I think is most infected of all. It is the basis of someone saying, a loving God would never insert whatever they disagree with. A loving God would never judge anyone. A loving God wouldn't send someone to eternal separation from himself just because they didn't believe in Jesus. It's sometimes presented positively, right? It's God is love, so therefore, do whatever we want. Now, the problem here is twofold. First of all, God's love is very much bounded by his holiness. His holiness is his absolute separation from sin and sinfulness. He is completely other than us, especially where sin is concerned. In fact, the only way that we really can know him, because he's so other from us and so separate, is he has to reveal things about himself. He has to tell us about himself for us to even know him, right? And so he does that both in the natural world, Romans chapter 1, and the scripture. So we can know him. He wants to be known. His love is bounded by and flows out of his holiness. Since he's holy and perfect in every way, he can't be anything but loving because to be less than loving would be to be less than perfect. To be truly holy then. But because of that holiness, his love demands there must be justice. If love is bounded by holiness, then anything goes. Well, so-and-so killed somebody in anger, but love, there's no justice, just going to let it go, because without holiness, you can't really be out of punishment. How can you say that something is wrong if you don't have a standard of what is right? For God to say because someone did wrong they need to be punished requires a love that is bounded and shaped by holiness. So God's holy love demands justice for the one who has suffered the sin against them, which is him in every case, and us in some cases. And then receiving justice for the sin committed against them. Now I realize Saul sounds like that's what Washington says. But the thing is you have to have love and holiness together. His love alone is going to demand standards. But he desires that his creatures live up to certain standards, which he has revealed. And when they do not, which we all do not, Romans 3, 23, his holy love demands his justice. Whether we repent in direction. And since he knows what's best for us, his standards, which are set by his holiness, are actually loving for his creatures. Holiness demands those standards, and love demands 
that for our good, those standards be enforced. It's for our own good. Because the things that go against his standards are bad for us. And he knows that because he created them. And they're also an offense to him. So they have to be punished. All right, so keeping those insufficient laws in mind, let's get to the text and see what John wants us to understand about how God is love. God's love. Verses 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is clearly not limited to some sort of feeling about us. What is shown to us, right, what manifested means, it's shown to us by what God does for us. What he does for us is a demonstration of love. What does he do? He sends Jesus so that we might live. He sends Jesus, the word we use here, in this version is propitiation. Some of your versions might say a clean sacrifice for our sins. He doesn't just talk about love. Let's sing him a song. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about He doesn't just talk about love. He doesn't just claim to love. He doesn't just love the word good. He shows his love and how he acts towards us. What this means is God looks at us and he sees that we've sinned and that we've made a mess of everything. And in particular, we have violated his holy standards. And we know that from the beginning and all through scripture, certainly spelled out in Romans chapter 6, that sin against the holy standards of God deserves and results in death. Right, that's the point of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It sheds the blood. There be forgiveness of sin. And not just the physical kind of death, but the spiritual kind, right? That we sin separates us from God. For eternity, if it wasn't for Christ. And Ephesians 2, that we read during communion, tells us we're already dead because of sin spiritually. Just wait to be dead physically. God sees this. And he decides out of his love that he's going to do the only thing possible to save us. He's going to send Jesus to die in our place. To be the propitiation for our sins. Not the fancy word. Say it three times. You know, you have to wipe the screen out But it's simply the idea of paying the penalty for sin so God can pronounce us forgiven, but still satisfy the requirements of justice that sin was paid for. Remember, I said for reunion, all sin has to be paid for. Because God is just. Justice demands that sin be paid for. Crime has to be paid for. So he makes a way to take the payment onto himself through Christ and so becomes both just because sin is paid for, but the justifier because he sends Jesus to pay the penalty for sin. He requires the payment for sin, which is death, but he lovingly sends Jesus to pay that penalty so all who would believe in Jesus' personal work can receive that payment. 
so they no longer have to face eternal death, but to receive eternal life. So when God, when John says God is love, he's saying God is the one who can be defined by his selfless, sacrificial actions for us. That's what love is. His very nature is to act in selfless and sacrificial ways for us. His nature is who he is. He saw what we needed, what was necessary, and his love motivates him to do what's best for us while still staying within the bounds of his holiness. And then he tells us, since he is love, that he must act in love. Right? If you love, that's how you act. Now you notice also that love is unconditional for us. You look closely at verse 10. What does it say? This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. He said his son to the propitiation for us. When God acts out of sacrificial love, it's not because, like, somehow we're loving God or we're so great or we're, we're doing all these things to be deserving of Jesus and here we are all hanging out, you know, and God's sitting up there in heaven and he's looking at his book. You know what I can't imagine is eternity without love. <laughs> that little guy, he is. First, first, 
you got to stop doing x, 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 and x. And then you can put your faith in Jesus. You know, do that. It's like that song we sang. You, you just bring it, whatever. Bring your, your, your traumas and your addictions and your sins and all this. And come in faith. And let him deal with it.
because it seems very loving of God to only make one way of salvation. And actually cancel it. It seems very loving of God that he made any way of Considering how badly his creation has been done against him. The final point of verse John here is that we experience God by loving one another. Verse 11 and 12. Love, if God so loved us, we also, also ought to love one another. No one's seen God at any time. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now the astute students of the Bible would read this and immediately point out that, wait a minute! Jesus says in John 14, he tells his disciples that if they've seen him, they've seen the Father. <coughs> now he's saying nobody's ever seen God. He wrote them both. They could have been absent that day. Could have been out, you know, doing a little fishing or getting a loaf of bread or something like that. But if you read Jesus very carefully in John 14, you understand that he is explaining when he's talking about that, you know, conceiving the Father, blah, blah, blah. He's talking about knowing what God is like, knowing God's nature. He's not talking about but I think John here is literally talking about seeing God, right? Nobody's seen God face to face. The Old Testament, when God reveals himself to Moses, what does he do? He shields Moses as he goes past, right? So that he can't look right out on God. When Old Testament figures experience some kind of manifestation of God, his glory is always masked if he appears as the angel of the Lord something like that, so that they can't see exactly what he's like. And even when people kind of come close to get a glimpse of what it's really like to see his glory, like Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6, what do they do? I'm dead. I'm going to die. But what John does tell us is we can experience God every time we love one another. Because loving others the way God loves Right? Unconditionally. Receiving that kind of love is a little taste of heaven. A little bit of heaven on it. Even better than you. So I put some sourdough and toaster and get some of that handsome butter. That's that a little bit of heaven on it. This is way better. Way better. It's a little glimpse of what the love of God is like. But that also means, so we can experience God by, as we love one another. It also means that when we're unloving, we're not reflecting what God is like. And especially for those who don't yet know God as we do, if we're unloving for them, that's going to give them the impression that maybe God is alone, and not moving really for repentance and faith. Well, everybody loves Even not Christians love the God's love. So we've got to understand that God's perfect love exists as part of a perfect and holy God. God isn't divided or separated. You can be a little bit loving over here, a little bit holy over here, a little bit not Christian over here, or a little bit not Christian. He's all of everything He is all the time. And so, in his holiness, he has to bring justice for the cosmic treason that is our sin. And in love, he takes the penalty for sin into himself through Jesus' death. 
For God is love. And that he does everything himself that is needed for us to have eternal life. And for justice, his justice, his holy righteousness to be served. And then only requiring faith in Jesus to receive that in our own lives. Let's pray. Father, we almost Thank you.